Please remain standing in honor of God's word. We're continuing on through 2 Peter, and this morning we'll look at half a verse, 2 Peter 3.18. Last week I said that this week was going to be the last message on Amen, uh, but that will be next week. Um, I looked at this doxology on the glory of Christ, and I thought, that is worth a message. So um, next week, Lord willing, unless the pastor once again changes his mind, uh, we will finish up as we look at AM. Amen. Uh, but this morning, Second Peter 3.18b, this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I love the episode in Second Chronicles 7 where we read, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worshipped, and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Father, I want to boldly ask that as I finish praying this morning, you will come down in fire as it were. I want to ask that your glory will fill this place so that we know we are in the presence of the living God. And by the end of the service, I want to ask that we would feel like the most appropriate response would be to bow down with our faces to the ground, praising you for the great and glorious God that you are. We ask that you would do this by way of your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It was not simply for the sake of pious rhetoric that Peter ended his second epistle, to whom be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter's heart burned for his Lord to receive the glory that he so richly deserves. We see similar doxologies in Paul's letters. And by the way, that word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. So it means a word of glory or a a word of praise. Uh, But one example among many is found in Romans 11.36. And last week, I won't do it again this week, but last week I asked if you had any favorite verses, and I had mentioned that John MacArthur, when he signed one of my books, uh, signed 2 Corinthians 3.18. Steve Lawson says that whenever he signs someone's book, he writes down Romans 11.36. So he, he loves this verse for what that's worth, and this verse comes at the very end of 11 chapters of rich theology. And it ends with these words. Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
It's as though Paul has given us all this great theology and he says, I need to pause for a moment and just give you this great doxology and just celebrate who God is. And this verse is all about God. It's about as God-centered as it gets. It reminds us that all things originate from God, that all things come into being and continue through God, and finally, that everything is ultimately headed to God. Thus, God is the source, the sustainer, and the goal of all things. So the most reasonable response is, to him be the glory forever. Amen. I love what C. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said about his theology. He said his theology was that which places the eternal God at the head of all things. Now, I like this. I look at everything through its relation to the glory of God. I see God first and man far down the list. Brethren, if we live in sympathy with God, we delight to hear him say, I am God, and there is no other. Uh, Many of you were not here 25 years ago when I gave my first message. (laughs) So I'm going to remind you of what my first message was, since most of you weren't here. But my first message, I don't remember the exact title, but it was something along the lines of all for God's Glory, And in that first message, I wanted this congregation to know that everything God does from beginning to end, he does for his glory. And if God does everything that he does for his glory, then it only stands to reason that everything we do should also be for his glory. And I wanted that truth to drive our congregation, and I wanted it to define us as a people, and 25 years later, I still do. And since most of you weren't here, you could consider this morning's message review. It's probably good to review every 25 years or so. So so here you go, four points this morning if you're taking notes. Um, The first will be, all the decrees are for God's glory. Second, our salvation is for God's glory. Third, our enjoyment is for God's glory, and then for the benefits of enjoying God's glory. So let's begin with all the decrees are for God's glory, or we could say it this way, all that God ordains to come to pass is ultimately for his glory. And that was clearly implied in Romans eleven thirty six, and also in Second Peter three eighteen. That's what it means for all things to be to God's glory. Everything that He ordains, that He causes to come to pass, is all moving in the direction of bringing Him glory. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question seven asks, "What are the decrees of God?" And the answer is. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That is to say that all that God causes to happen was planned by him in eternity past in order to display his glory. This means that there really is only one ultimate answer to all such questions is, 
Why did God create the universe for his glory? Why did he create angels and humans for his glory? Why did he ordain that sin and evil occur? Why did he choose the nation of Israel? Why does he elect some and not others? Why does he send saints to heaven and sinners to hell? The answer to these and similar questions is all the same. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in the heavens and on earth, in the sea and all the deeps to the glory of God of his name. And I could give you a host of scriptures demonstrating that, but just let me give you two more. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, God says to the Israelites, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. So God says again and again, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, for my, this is why I'm doing it. I am doing it for my name's sake and for my Glory. And then just one more, John 17, 4. This is Jesus praying in what's commonly known as his high priestly prayer. And he says, speaking to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What's Jesus saying? I glorified you on earth, doing the work that you gave me to do. Everything that I did throughout my life on earth, I did for one ultimate purpose, that I would bring glory to you. That's why Jesus lived. That's why he died. And that's why you and I live and die. And we already looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 31, but we'll look at it one more time. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Jerry Bridges writes, Note the all-encompassing breadth of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Nothing in life is too ordinary or insignificant to be excluded. Even our eating and drinking is to be done for God's glory. Nothing is so important that we can say it supersedes the pursuit of God's glory. Everything that we do in life is ultimately to be for God's glory. So all the decrees are for God's glory. Number two, our salvation is for God's glory. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 1. This is verses 11 through 14. He said, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's a sermon right there. So that we who were the fo first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Why did God save you? So that you could be a trophy of his grace and glory. If you're a Christian, people should look at you and say, look at how glorious God is saving that person. Now, here's, here's a question I want to ask. What is salvation? What exactly is salvation? It's another one of those questions that you could look at from uh, a number of angles. You could consider uh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So salvation occurs when we put our faith in Christ who died on the cross for our sins and then rose again on the third day and then 40 days later ascended into heaven and we put our faith in him and as a result of that we don't perish but we have eternal life. So salvation is believing in Jesus Christ so that we can live forever. Another another definition from another angle comes from 1 Corinthians 4. And I'm going to look at verses 3 through 4 and then 6. And by the way, for those of you who are in the attributes of God, small group, I have to tell you this is a little bit of a spoiler because we're going to talk about this in uh, a week and a half. But maybe instead of calling it a spoiler, we can call it a preview. Maybe like a trailer to a movie. So, wow, that looks really good. I guess I'm going to have to come out uh, and hear the rest of it uh, in a week and a half on Thursday here at the church at 7 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this, this is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 3. Dyslexia taking place there. <laughs> and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, literally that should be aged, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So notice what Satan does. Satan blinds people. And specifically, what does he blind them to? He blinds them from seeing the light of the gospel. And what is the light of the gospel? It is the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. The gospel is seeing the glory of Christ. And then when you see that, you put your faith in that. And then verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you may recall on the first day of creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And there was a day, if you're a Christian, that God spoke into your hearts, and he said, let there be light, and light entered your dark heart, and for the first time, you saw the glory of God, and you saw that glory in the face of Jesus Christ which means that salvation occurs when somebody sees the glory of God in Christ for the first time. Maybe you heard about Jesus before. Maybe like me, you, you grew up in a church and yes, you believed in God. You be, even believed in his son. Maybe you even believed in his death 
on the cross, maybe even believed in his resurrection, but all you saw were bare facts about the gospel. You just saw this, this message, but you didn't see glory. Perhaps you, you heard that and you, you yawned or you thought, okay, that's, that's nice. But then when God opens your eyes, you see something different. Now you hear the same message. Maybe you've even heard it many times. But now you hear Jesus died on the cross for your sins that you could be forgiven. And we know God accepted his sacrifice because he raised him on the third day. And then 40 days later, he ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And right now he's ruling and reigning over the nations. But now you see the glory in that. And maybe you wonder, I've heard that message so many times, but I never saw just how glorious it was. I never personalized it. And for the first time, you respond. And you repent of your sin. And you put your faith in Christ. And you are a new creation because of that message. And it's because you saw the glory in the message. Maybe for the first time. Last week, Ryan was telling me about a well-known singer who should go unnamed. But this singer said that they have now become a Christian. And somebody asked them, now that you're a Christian, how is your life going to change? And, and they said, my life's not going to change. And I thought, your life's not going to change? Uh, we need to take a couple steps back and we need to talk about what it means to be a Christian. Because here's what I can tell you from personal experience. Here's what I can tell you from God's word. When you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you are changed forever. You will not be the same person. You cannot be the same person. If you think you became a Christian and your life is not going to change, I have to be honest with you. You have not seen the glory. You may have assented to the facts, but you're not seeing the glory because that glory transforms your life. And by the way, when Paul talks about shining into our hearts and and we see the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ, that that knowledge is experiential knowledge, and that's important. That, that's not just knowledge up here. That's knowledge in your heart. You know it is true because you've experienced it. It's like if you were to ask me, how do you know honey is sweet? I know honey is sweet because this morning I put a teaspoon in my coffee and I tasted it. I don't need someone to give me a study of how we know honey is sweet. I don't need a testimony of others saying, trust me, honey is sweet. I have tasted it for myself. My knowledge of honey being sweet is experiential. And it's the same with the glory of God. We're talking about an experiential knowledge. How do you know God is glorious? Because I've seen him. I know God is glorious the same way I know a sunset over the Grand Canyon is glorious. I have been there. I have seen it. It's glorious. So that's important. We're talking about an experiential knowledge that has penetrated our hearts and it changes our lives. 
And I believe history is moving in the direction of that knowledge spreading across the globe. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not just a knowledge in the head, but a knowledge in the hearts, and it's going to cover the earth. So all decrees are for God's glory. Our salvation is for God's glory. Number three, our enjoyment is for God's glory. Uh, how many were, were here? I forgot to ask. How many of you were here my, my first Sunday? Okay, we, we got a few. How many of you were here my second Sunday? Okay, so most of you missed that message, okay? Okay, so my second Sunday, okay, I plagiarized from, from John Piper, but I, 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 did, I did give credits, okay? And I do believe, if I remember correctly, the title of the message was, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I did get that from John Piper, and I think that is a great truth. And what I asked that second Sunday was, if everything we are to do is for God's glory, then we should ask the obvious follow-up question. How is God then most glorified in our lives? And the answer again was, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And it is okay that I plagiarized from John Piper because he plagiarized from Jonathan Edwards. And, and this is what Jonathan Edwards said in his miscellanies. God glorifies himself towards the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to them, being manifested to their understanding. Two, in communicating himself to their hearts, and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified, not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. So God is more glorified when we see that glory and then we rejoice in it. Maybe by singing praises to him because we see that. That's where God is more glorified. And this wasn't even original with, with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, the Westminster divines understood this truth and it was very important to them. And I've said this before. Uh, if you don't know any catechism questions and answers, you at least need to know question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I am so glad you got that down. And that really is important. There's a reason why that's the number one question and answer. That, that's where it has to begin. Why are we here? Why did God create? What, what is our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him.
forever. And I, and I like the twist that John Piper gives on the answer. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And he said, notice that the Westminster divines didn't say the chief ends of man, as though there were more than one. He said the chief end of man. And then they said to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So those aren't two separate things. Sometimes we glorify God. Sometimes we enjoy them. No, that's one end, glorifying God and enjoying God. And then if you want to know a second uh, catechism question and answer, you might want to move to the Westminster Larger Catechism, which expands on the answer. And this is what we read in the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism. This is uh, question number one and answer. It's only a little bit longer. What is the chief and highest end of man? So I think it's just clarifying. This is the chief end of man. It's clear, but they want to say, and highest. So they're just being in fact, there is nothing higher or greater than this. And then the answer they give, the chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. So all they're adding to the answer and to fully enjoy him forever. So again, they're just trying to be emphatic. We need to enjoy God. We need to fully enjoy God. In other words, if we're going to glorify him, let's enjoy him as much as we possibly can. That's why we have been created. That's why we exist. So here's a great question. Are you enjoying God? Are you enjoying God? By the way, notice that the Westminster divines didn't say the chief end of man is to glorify God and serve him. They didn't say the chief end of man is to glorify God and sacrifice for him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and obey him. Are we to do all those things? Yes, we are to do all those things. But notice they said the chief end of man is to glorify him and enjoy him. And guess what? If you really enjoy God, you will serve him, you will sacrifice for him, and you will obey him all because you want to. Your attitude will not be, I guess I have to do these things because I'm a Christian. and After all, that's what we're called to do. Serve God, sacrifice for God, obey God. Your attitude will not be, I guess this is what I have to do. Your attitude will be, this is what I get to do. Because I love him. What a privilege to sacrifice for him. And you know you're on the right track. The Christian life is a joy for you. If it's a privilege to serve, and along with David Livingston, You say, people talk about the sacrifice that I've made, leaving the comforts of America, going to Africa. I never made a sacrifice. It was a privilege to go to Africa and serve God. So what if I was inconvenienced from time to time? It was a privilege. It was an honor to serve God. Now, I never made a sacrifice. That's someone who has the right attitude because they're enjoying God. Just a couple of verses on... And perhaps these are the most God-glorifying statements and 
in all the Bible. But this, this is Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, where Asaph, Israel's worship leader, says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look at all that this world has to offer. And Asaph says, I just need God. God is my strength. God is my portion. There's nothing else that I desire besides God. If I am given some of the enjoyments of this world, I will thank God. I will praise God. I will use them. But God is the one that I want. I love that. So, number one, all decrees are for God's glory. Our salvation is for God's glory. Our enjoyment is for God's glory. And then for the benefits of enjoying God. And there are many, but let me give you just a couple this morning. The first one is boldness in prayer. Boldness in prayer. Uh, My professor from seminary, D.A. Carson, asks believers this question. Has God become so central to our thoughts and pursuits and thus to our praying that we cannot easily imagine asking for anything without consciously longing that the answer bring glory to God? That's a great probing question. So our our prayers may have many Uh, different immediate purposes, such as a a loved one coming to Christ or success in business or greater intimacy in in marriage. But, But in all of those, we should be desiring above all things that God is glorified in the answer to those prayers. We should be saying, Lord, work in this person. Work in this situation. Bring healing to this person, whatever it may be. And Lord, will you please do it ultimately for your glory so people know that you care about them, so that they know you are a great God. Will you do it so that you will be glorified? That, that's so important. I think pagans pray, pray all the time. They, they can pray for their business. They can pray for their health. They can pray for their marriages. They, they can pray for their children, but they're... They're not longing that in the answer, God, God is glorified. That's what makes a, a prayer truly a, a Christian prayer. And, and if you want an example of how to, how to do this, a good one is found in Psalm 79.9, where the psalmist says, Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. So here's, here's a takeaway. I'll give it to you now. This next week, as you pray and you bring your request before God, be very deliberate and intentional about saying, and Lord, will you do this so that you are glorified? And that will help you to have the right motivation in your prayer. And also, I believe that will help you to be bold in prayer uh, one of my favorite examples is that of, of Martin Luther. In 1540, Martin Luther's good friend and assistant, Frederick Maconius, became sick 
and was expected to die within a short period of time. He wrote a tender farewell letter to Luther from his sickbed. When Luther received the message, he immediately sent back a reply. I command you in the name of God to live because I still need your help in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying. This is my will and may my will be done. Because I seek only to glorify the name of God. See what he's saying? I am praying that this will happen. I am believing that this will happen. And I am believing it and trusting it because I am praying it for God's glory. And when you can do that, that will bring power to your prayers. And although it may have seemed like a harsh prayer at first, God apparently honored the prayer. Because although Myconius had already lost the ability to speak, when Luther's reply came, he soon recovered. And Myconius lived six more years and died two months after Luther. God answered his prayer. Whence cometh such boldness from praying for God's glory? And then just one more, living for God's glory will bring strength in life. And in this time, instead of looking ahead to the small group, I'm looking back. We talked about it this last Thursday. Um, but we were talking about 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And I mentioned that when you preach, you want to give application, you know, this is what we need to do in response to God's word. I said, but often I think, if I can just show you just a glimpse of God's glory, if I can just show you just a little bit of how great and glorious God is that will make a difference in your life. And John Owen understood this. This is what John Owen said. Some talk much of imitating Christ and following his example, but no man will ever become like him by trying to imitate his behavior and life if they know nothing of the transforming power of beholding his glory. If we regularly beheld the glory of Christ, our Christian walk with God would become more sweet and pleasant. Our spiritual light and strength would grow daily stronger and our lives would more gloriously represent the glory of Christ. Some complain of their sad spiritual state, but if they would only behold the glory of Christ by faith as he is revealed to us in the scriptures, they would soon be healed. And I agree with that. If, if God would only make his glory known to us in the pages of Scripture, and we could see that, that alone would transform our lives. Nothing else will satisfy us other than the glory of God. I love the prayer of Moses, simple 
direct, audacious, show me your glory. And I think about that prayer because think of what Moses saw. He saw his staff turn into a serpent. He saw the ten plagues in Egypt. He saw the the parting of the Red Sea. He saw manna fall from heaven six out of seven days during the week. And he says, show me your glory. And you want to think, Moses, you you haven't seen it? (laughs) You've, You've seen more of the glory of God than any other person who ever lived. But what he wanted to see was God himself in all his glory. And he knew that he wouldn't be satisfied till he saw that. But if he could only see that, then he would be satisfied and he would be strengthened and nothing else would compare with that. So as we go into our coming week, let's let that be our prayer. Lord, show me your glory. Just a little bit more than what I have already seen in my Christian life. Let's close in prayer. Father, I first of all want to pray that if any have not experienced your glory by beholding, I want to ask that you and your sovereign grace and goodness will shine into their hearts so that they can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, for those of us who have seen it, we thank you for your mercy that you've extended toward us. And we pray that you would give us greater glimpses of your glory, even day by day as we read your scriptures. As we open your word, we don't want to just learn truths or doctrines or theology. We want to behold your glory. So, Lord, we ask you to show us your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.